If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, episode number 43. On last week's episode, we discussed Black Sails and the Sunset by AFI. The public have decided that it does not make it into a discography, and the vote was a lot closer than I think we really expected, so thank you very much to everybody who listened and to everybody who voted. On this week's episode, we're talking about Spirit of Eden by Talk Talk. But before we get into that, just want to ask you, I know it's like a broken record, but we need to keep doing it. Tell your friends about this podcast. That's all we're asking. Just tell a friend. Simple, really. So let's get on with the show. This is Spirit of Eden by Talk Talk. Hi, you're listening to the Unsung Podcast. I'm your host Mark Fraser and I'm joined by two men who are currently in competition for the world's longest running two-person conga line. <laughs> what does that even mean? Man, do you see in between these episodes, <laughs> do you go out into the desert with ayahuasca to come up with these yeah. glorious like, little it's wonderful. journeys of metaphor? The best time of my life. Excellent. Alright, well across the room from me today is David Weaver, who is wearing quite a fetching tracky top. I like a tracky top. Thanks, it's velour. Hmm. For a long time, I couldn't I couldn't deal with them because I had long hair, and something about tracky tops and long hair just makes you look like I don't know. You're gonna steal. scum. <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> makes you look like scum. <laughs> um, it gets you followed around uh, shops, but yeah, uh, got the short back and sides and back in the tracky tops. That's me. Thanks. And to my right is uh, the 1980s most undervalued cultural export, Chris Cusack. I don't even know what that meant. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I thought the conga line thing was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the most 1980s most undervalued cultural export. Export well, to the 1990s? I don't know. Export's not the, the word, is it? Tenants export. Tenants export. McEwen's export. Uh, both. Was that a tenants export? Yeah. Yeah, but that's more of a new thing. I think that was like their, they tried to make that like their prime uh, European lager sold in bottles. Who was, who was the wee guy on the front of the McEwen's export cans? I remember him. He had a black hat and like a beard. Yeah, that was Mr. McEwen. He looked like a pirate in my memory. He does look like a pirate. He does. Yeah. Yeah. Aye, he did have a sort of... For non-Scottish listeners out there, aye, we're talking about brands of Scottish beer. As we've been told, don't patronise the listener, David. They have Google. Oh, yeah, that is true. <laughs> By aye. some of our more, you know, high-maintenance listeners that <laughs> 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 raise those kind of queries. Um, but, you know, we value you all. Uh, some more than others, such as Fraser Stewart, who became the... Well, actually, he's not the first person to give us 100 quid. That goes to uh, Craig Carrick. 
But uh, Fraser what? Stewart, who's that's the... wrong. Can I give us fifty? Yeah. I think he would give us a hundred dollars, maybe. I did. Australian dollars. dollars. It was fifty quid. Yeah. Mm. Uh. Anyway, Fraser is the first one to make the hundred pound mark, and he's the first one to get to pick an episode. Um, which is and we will will record it in his living room as well. Uh, actually, I think Our Fraser, room. Fraser's. I think opted to come down here. That's so fine. we're kind of yeah. breaching contract a wee bit, but that it's he, up to him. It's yeah. a living room of his choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you had to choose a living room, you choose mine. I've not all seen his, so that might be amazing. Might be entirely made of velour. He's clearly got something to hide. He doesn't <laughs> want us going up there. It's just on D. Just boxes of heroin, just sitting now <laughs> <laughs> waiting to get punted. <laughs> Fat goth merchandise and heroin. <laughs> He's got an entire sofa that's just a blanket thrown over some carefully arranged boxes of heroin. Thanks, Fraser. Anyway, we do genuinely yeah, appreciate, we do. It. <laughs> appreciate that a lot. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, man. It's that's totally uncalled for in every single capacity, <laughs> but thank you very much, nonetheless. <laughs> well, he's going to be here. He's going to have to get toughened up before that. Um, what was the album that you picked? Oh God! Has he chosen it yet? Yeah. Or oh, you? You? Yeah. You're... Train something. Oh. Train, the band Train. Yeah. Uh, oh, Tears of Jupiter. Tears of Jupiter. Oh, that's a classic. Which actually sounds like it would be something that Rush would have done. Yeah, but it, uh, the music was not. <laughs> it is. I am forever by Train Dodge. Train Dodge. That's the one. Great. Yeah. Looking forward to that. So that'll be that'll be good. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Well, it'll we'll be fun. We'll see. I mean, speaking of fun. David, speaking of fun, speaking of fun, David, what the <laughs> fuck were you thinking? <laughs> uh, so, oh yeah, so this the record that we're doing today is a uh, talk talk with Spirit of Eden. Um, Can I do this entire podcast in the voice of Mark Hollis? So why did you pick? <laughs> so I mean, Talk Talk, I think are one of those bands that if you say, what, what if I said before I chose this record, um, what do you think of Talk Talk? What do you know about Talk Talk? What would you have said, Mark? Gwen Stefani. Gwen Stefani. <laughs> yeah. It's my life. Don't you forget. Yeah. It's my life. Don't you forget. It's my life. It never ends. That's like a, song, a, big, a big 80s pop song. Mm-hmm. Christopher Cusack. Uh, Life's What You Make It. Um, uh-huh. The single with the video with the tree. I'd seen years ago. Yeah. Baby, that's what you make Can't it. And being overwhelmed by the absurdity of it mm-hmm. and just generally a guy standing under a tree wearing shades at night. Yeah. Um, but that was my impression. I'd actually, I, I'm a big Interpol fan and Interpol had cited Talk Talk's name and quite a mm-hmm. number of different interviews and things like that and so I'd gone and checked them out and strength of that I can't say I was enamoured um, but to be fair I have complex feelings about this album I'm being a little bit churlish to kick us off because mm-hmm. I'm feeling a wee bit fighty it's been a, oh, it's been a rough week <laughs> 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 but um, yeah I, I, I've, I've complicated feelings about this but no I'm, I'm not a huge fan but I yet there's my higher brain, mm-hmm. which has an appreciation for them that we'll get into, but my reptilian brain is like, the fuck is this? Okay. But I mean, they're a band that, for many people, it's like, oh yeah, 80s pop, couple of singles, that it's my life, or... Funnily enough, that is, yeah, that's absolutely not what I thought of them as. I didn't yeah. even know that song was by them until we did this. It was, the, the later stuff is the stuff I'd heard. I mean, I fucking love good 80s pop. It's my most subscribed playlist on my spotify more so than new metal uh yeah is my 80s pop playlist i think there was a time in the 80s when like especially in the uk there were bands and artists that were doing a lot of really interesting things with a big sort of pop sensibility they all came from different places and you had stuff that came from 
synth pop like Duran Duran and uh, Spandu Ballet and Tears for Fears by the mid 80s when they had money they were making some really interesting sort of big bombastic pop you know like songs from the big chair by Tears for Fears it's an f- absolute masterpiece Hounds of Love by Kate Bush absolute masterpiece things I, like that I, I don't like the two of them being bracketed together I think that Kate Bush is tremendous uh, that Tears for Fears are pure fucking Scrote water to me. I can't stand it. Well, it's, you're absolutely incorrect. <laughs> Songs from and the Big bit, Chair is a fucking like bombastic masterpiece of pop. I should have some kind of like national uh, soft spot for Tears for Fears, but I, I absolutely don't. Plus, they they look like national. Yeah, they're not Scottish. No, are you thinking of Simple Minds? Uh, or Hue and Cry, maybe. That's the ones. Hue and Cry, the ones I'm thinking of. Oh yeah, Hue and Cry were about then, but mm-hmm. didn't really leave anything worth. Tears for Fears did. Uh, they're the ones that look like the Mitchell brothers now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right, okay. You and Cry Mitchell. Yeah. Um. No, I won't have a bad thing said about Tears for Fears. And I'm going to see them in... Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Yeah. Head Over Heels, Mother's Talk, and they did the original Mad World. Yeah, they're bollocks. No, they're not. <laughs> they're really fucking good. But then there was like a lot of bands didn't quite make those great records, but had like good songs. And to me, that's what I always thought Talk Talk were. I think I had today and it's my life in my big 80s playlist. But I didn't really know anything else about them. Then it turns out that towards the second half of their career, they uh, told the pop world to just fuck off and they started making long, ambient, experimental, post-jazz rock records. Disappeared up the bumholes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just a really interesting career trajectory for an 80s band. Yeah, it's maybe useful to emphasise just how goddamn 80s they were to start with as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they were particularly... Good at it, you know. A lot of people thought they were just sort of Duran Duran ripoffs, and they yeah, weren't doing so anything. A bit like Depeche Mode Light sometimes as well. Yeah, they, they toured with Duran Duran as well, but they they even disowned their own first the, their first album, The Party's Over, nineteen eighty two. Like they don't even talk about that as being in the context of the back catalogue. It was because it was like it's kind of weird. So it started as four people. So that Mark Hollis who's the kind of main cat. Yeah. Uh, Lee Harris on drums. Is it Paul Webb on bass? And there was a guy called Simon Brenner on keys originally. He yep. left. But then this guy, Tim Freeze Green, yep. came in for their second album and basically became the main song like songwriter along with uh Mark Hollis. Even though he never joined the band, he was like producing them, songwriting, doing live keys. Yeah. Um and then by the end I think it was just the two of them, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty uh, much. with like Hollis uh, sorry, uh Harris doing drums for them but as almost as a session musician it's quite it's quite a weird trajectory that they took um but yeah they they totally disowned that first album um there's a track on it called today that i thought was actually not terrible Um, yeah that's the one i've got that in my playlist it's like a good 80s pop hit yeah um mirror man was their first single and then their second single was talk talk by talk talk (laughs) (laughs) which was listed on a compilation as just talk 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 talk. There you go. Um, and then their second album was called "It's My Life." Is that right? Yep, nineteen eighty four. And these records did fairly well in Europe. Actually, they never really smashed the UK. Yeah, charts. I they were dead frustrated with the UK press. I noticed, mm-hmm. like, and some of their interviews were pretty, you know, bad tempered because they seemed really sort of a little bit resentful of not getting. A certain amount of backing. They're dead cult. They were like really critically uh, acclaimed, especially when they got onto Spirit of Eden and stuff like that. But they were kind of commercially inviable. Um, yeah, that uh, it was a third album. Um, the Color of Spring was like their most commercially successful. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was like the weird sort of crossover record yeah. where it was still they were writing 
pop songs, but they sort of abandoned the synth and they were like, we're a pop rock band. It's, yeah, it's got a really r- Roxy music thing happening in it as well, which yeah. I'm apparently quite into. And funnily enough, it it's kind of sounds a lot like maybe Simple Minds at that sort of time who were doing a similar thing. They were going from synth pop to then going into a much more stadium rock vibe and you know they become i've had a lot of time for the early simple mind stuff actually yeah see you go dream is a really great record and their first record is actually pretty kind of alternative and edgy sounding but um i know that uh the the later stuff simple minds weren't actually writing it it was like a lot of it was like tracks that were purchased in the same way you know we've spoken about that before but Mm -hmm. like bands like aerosmith and bon jovi buying singles basically from um although i'm not sure if they were they certainly they didn't write don't you forget about me it, it was, was offered for, to them yeah it was written for the soundtrack i think it was offered to survivor was it not uh, something like that, that yeah it was offered to some really weird 80s band um yeah. they actually they were kind of embarrassed by that they weren't like oh we're buying singles they sort of felt that this is the success of that single was a bit annoying to them because you know it wasn't one that they'd written mm. for simple minds cry but, me a river lads yeah. aye cry know. me a river and then you own part of the biggest football club in the country and probably <laughs> <laughs> drive home with like gold uh, hubcaps. Um, I, yeah, I, I, that um, the the color of spring album I mean, is pretty dreadful. It's like it. It's it, interesting it, that it got <laughs> commercial success and critical success, and yet for me, yeah, going back to it, I, I, it's not a great record. Is it kind of has the worst of both worlds? Yeah, for I, me, I think it. I can. So I've got this kind of higher brain reaction to Spirit of Eden that we'll get to, and I appreciate its significance and I appreciate what it inspired in other people. If it is indeed planting the seeds of post rock, which I, there's an argument for, um, man, the 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 color of spring is planting the seeds of some of the worst MOR pop that came out of the UK, kind of like almost like Lighthouse Family level beige. Cack that we we have or certainly in the nineties as well had no shortage of this kind of like completely unremarkable vaguely soulish like simply red. Did a lot of it. It's like vaguely like loungy wine bar, easy listening, easy listening <laughs> mor stuff, and that album is just. Blah goodness me it's like a precursor to that guff i found that one really tough going i mean it is a big step up to spirit of eden from that i think it's really interesting how they took basically all the money they made from the record deal and then actually got real musicians to come in and play all the parts that were playing on synths before mm-hmm. more or less and then obviously changed things up and made things a lot more jazzy for spirit of eden like yeah i feel significantly like so certainly mark hollis was maybe like a sort of a man a musician frustrated in what he was, you know, maybe put there in a fairly successful synth pop band, but like by circumstance, and he was like, "Oh, I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm projecting. Sorry, I'm not projecting. I'm speculating. Um, I kind of get the feeling there's also maybe a little bit of an element of sour grapes. Like they had a couple of decent sized singles, uh, including "It's My Life," but they never were Duran Duran. They never were Tears for Fears. They never were. Yeah, but I think that was maybe you know that they didn't have that in them the the, th- the thing is as well there's a lot of mystery that surrounds them because they don't really speak to the press and he he quit the music industry yeah but even that sort of came across a wee bit as sour grapes like their failure to click in the uk at the same time as those bands and including stuff like spando ballet and stuff as well they just seemed like also runs a wee bit and that they then i mean okay it developed it, it led them to develop some pretty interesting music but I, there's there's also obviously between the lines the potential that some of their some of their enigmatic sort of avoidance and stuff is really just a little bit of a fucking tantrum. It kind of came across a wee bit like that in some of their interviews. They're a little bit combative. Um, like, I think one of the Guardian interviews just starts with them saying no to, like, three or four different, like, questions. And it's just, like, I don't know. I, I didn't get the entirely driven, frustrated artist thing. I kind of got a sort of slightly embittered, uh, quasi-successful synth band that, watched other people pass them you would be pretty pissed about that right i mean they weren't as they weren't as good looking as bands like span the ballet or duran duran Duran, and they didn't have the tunes like depeche mode and and uh erasure and all that had they were just really in the middle you know yeah no arguments here there's just you can see why they get really frustrated i I think like um 
it's worth i mean i'm assuming dave this is part of why you were so enthused by it as well um that alongside mainly slint people refer to this as being like the 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 germination of post rock as a genre. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean that came after the first time I'd heard it. Uh, I just, um, f- for a lot of people, this record seems to be or these two records because I think this record goes hand in hand uh, with Laughing Stock, the, the one that came out two years later. They're like, which is actually even more. Yeah, it's even more subdued, yeah. diverse and ambient and stuff like that. <laughs> um. um there's but it, it's the, the opening are, song in Laughing Stock, by the way. Honestly, like it, it barely happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's like an album that barely wakes up. Step out of step they seem to be records that are loved by musicians and recommended to other musicians by musicians and it was a musician that recommended me it was actually the uh, mark hollis solo record that he released in 1988 and uh, 1998 sorry was recommended to me by Catherine joseph and she described that as a you know really big influence on her sound that sort of stripped back piano and then i basically heard that that was a continuation of his work on the last two talk talk albums so that's how I went back and and I listened and I was like, holy fuck, this is like just the warmth of it, like the subtleness of it. And what, what having think, my previous experience been just those two singles, really, it was not what I was expecting at all. One one thing that really jumps out to me is that I'm a, I like I'm a reasonable sized fan of the band Shearwater. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan Myberg, the singer, is absolutely ripping off t- uh, Talk Talk wholesale yeah. just throughout. The difference is for me, Shearwater take at times something that is almost interchangeable with Talk Talk but they apply it to far better, catchier, more succinct bits of music. Shearwater have got some really, as well as having a lot of stuff that is grossly OTT and hackle raising, they have some really, really, really good songs scattered through their catalogue yeah. and like, yeah, I mean I, I feel as much as it's a, a pretty shameless rip, um, it's a better use of the style for me. Um, I, th- I believe like Talk Talk also had quite a big influence in that British band Elbow, who again are just the epitome of why. I know a lot of people, like a lot of musicians that I appreciate, love Elbow. I find them dreadfully dull. <laughs> you mentioned Mark Hollis's solo album. That's probably a good time for us to go to the Nexus. Oh yeah, let's the go Nexus. The Nexus. Mark, are you going to have a nice time doing the Nexus music this week? Because uh, I'm I'm at the picture. I'll maybe find something. Eh? Ah, yeah, that's going to be interesting. Did let's you like last week's? Go. By the way, last week's. Last week's. What the fuck was that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I was pretty chuffed with that. What were you doing? Well, it was there was we talked about wrestling, and I was like, man, we need to do some wrestling stuff. Yeah, it was great, but I was just like, why? Where did that come from? <laughs> inspiration you don't ask an artist <laughs> questions like that that's stupid <laughs> just accept it we'll play the music here then and we'll see what happens Shows potential. Yeah, so will I start off then, or does anybody else go first? You might as well, Mark, because I'm sure it'll be brief. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark Hollis released his debut album, as Dave says, in 1998. Yep. Most of the album was co-written with Warren Lively. I thought you were going to use the year as a... <laughs> the year 1998. Uh, Dave Grohl also released a song in 1998. <laughs> if you add the numbers 199 and 8, it's an age that Dave Grohl was at one point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was half of that. Most of the album was written by co-written by Warren Livesey. Warren Livesey. Livery. Warren Livesey. Livesey. Warren Livesey. Livesey. Well, he produced the uh, the 2008 Chris Waller record Field Manual. Oh yes. Um, which was <laughs> deep. <laughs> hum one song of that. <laughs> I 
<laughs> Do you know anything about Chris Wall? I don't know anything about Chris Wall. I know he's in Death Cab for Q. Oh, I hate Death Cab for Q. I'm not a fan either. Hey. I've got to be honest. That's true. I've had this problem with you guys before. <laughs> I don't know. I heard them on the radio. They just released a new song, didn't they? I have no idea. It was rubbish. Well, I heard. I just heard it on Six Music when I was doing the dishes, and I was like, oh, I don't like this song. And then it turned out to be Death Cab, so mm. it was unbiased. I didn't like it before I knew who it was. That often... As I'm, I'm accused of not liking them because everybody else likes them. Yeah. But no, I genuinely don't like them. As a big enthusiast of sparkly vampires, I like the song they did for Twilight. Mm. <laughs> that, that's so Chris Cusack. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Chris Walker produced some records for the Thermals. Um, On Sub Pop. Sorry? The band from Sub Pop. Yes, but I'm not going to go down that route. All right, okay. Well, that would have been a route. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their third album, The Body, The Blood, The Machine, was produced by Brendan Canty of Fugazi. Oh, yes. And obviously the first Rights of Spring records and various other Fugazi records were recorded in Anarchy Studios and then Anarchy Studios were featured on Dave Grove's seminal documentary, Sonic Highways. Uh, also, um, Scream played with them in Washington, D.C., oh. I believe, when he was a drummer in Scream. As well, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, great. So there, there you go. Chris? Uh, I've got a belter. Um, do you want me to do that or do you want to? Uh, I'll do my one first then. Uh, so uh, Talk Talk's first record was uh, produced by Colin Thurston. Uh, Colin Thurston was a big uh, producer. Did David Bowie, stuff like that. Boy. Uh, David Bowie. And <laughs> so he also crack. worked with Gary Newman on uh, The Fury, Newman's 1985 uh, album. Uh, Gary Newman was an outspoken supporter of the Conservative Party in the mid-80s and uh, supported Margaret Thatcher. Um, it was the punk he's thing, since rescinded it. But it was the punk thing to do. It was, I know. <laughs> uh, go against the grain and support Thatcher. Um, Margaret Thatcher um, was portrayed by Andrea Riesborough in uh, the TV film Long Walk to Finchley in 2008. Uh, Andrea Riesborough was recently in Mandy, I don't know if anybody's seen Mandy yet. I really like to see Mandy. Chris Cusack, have you seen the new film Mandy? Apparently it's excellent. I have heard the soundtrack. It's fucking unreal. I went to see it on Saturday in the GFT and I was we got there a bit late so we had to sit on the front row and my God, I was just immersed in <laughs> black metal, LSD, chainsaws and Nicolas Cage going fucking mental yeah. in his pants. <laughs> I have heard it's, nothing it's but unreal. really good stuff about it. And my, I, I heard my girlfriend absolutely hated it and just said, I can just imagine 14-year-old boys sitting in a room going, oh, oh, oh why, why don't we make them take cocaine? And she just, but she also said it was not made for her. It was made for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was fucking unreal. Mission accomplished. Um, yeah, so I would recommend Mandy. Oh. Anyway, uh, in Mandy, that's not a drug endorsement, by the way. <laughs> uh, n- <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Mandy, Andrea Risborough's character, Mandy, is wearing a Motley Crue T-shirt. Um, this is a tenuous <laughs> that's one, a very but, you know, tenuous. Uh, but it's quite, it's quite a big part of the film. Uh, Motley Crue's drummer Tommy Lee infamously went out with Pamela Anderson and recorded a a film. <laughs> uh, Pamela Anderson was also married to Kit. Film. What film is it, David? Uh, it was a uh, the boat film. The boat. <laughs> I love boat. Boating with Tommy Lee and Pam. Uh, anyway, uh, Pamela Anderson also was married to Kid Rock. Uh, Kid Rock uh, did a song called "Picture" featuring Cheryl Crow, um, which was a bad song. Uh, and Cheryl Crow's. Uh, second album Cheryl Crow the one with all the big songs on it like every day is a winding road blah 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 um that featured uh mastering guru Bob Ludwig okay as the masterer and he also mastered master of mastering uh all of Nirvana's mm-hmm. stuff apart there from you go. Uh, well apart from Bleach he did never mind in, in Euro I think anyway y- yes I think so yeah Anyway, that's your link. Thanks. All right, okay. Next it was mostly an excuse just to talk about how good Mandy is. <laughs> <laughs> also mission accomplished. Uh, all right, so Talk Talk had a video for I Believe in You, which as I've described already was pretty dreadful. That was directed by a fella called Tim Pope. Tim Pope has done loads and loads and loads of music videos uh, for people such as The Cure, Iggy Pop, The Bangles, Wham, 
Queen all manner, but uh, he also did a music video for the song Revenge by Ministry, uh, the industrial rock band. Yes. Yep, cool song as well. Um, Ministry, funnily enough, featured uh, a Scottish musician called Chris Connolly, who was born in Brunsfield in Edinburgh, who was originally in a band called Finitribe, um, but then became not only performed with Ministry, but was also part of the Revolting Cox. Uh, Jello Biafra of Dead Kennedys was also a member of Revolting Cox. And uh, Jello Biafra uh, started and ran Alternative Tentacles, uh, the record label in the States. Mm-hmm. Alternative Tentacles uh, recently did a kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, like a profile, a special profile, and I think it was maybe to support a re-release of a Brazilian thrash metal act from like, like that was started in 1981 called Ratos... Uh, I think it's Ratos de Parau, which means basement rats, and they're apparently like these total thrash legends from South America. Uh, as you can imagine, thrash legends from South America, they are very close friends of Sepultura. The Cavaleras. Yes. <clears throat> yep. I've seen bit. Sepultura once in Inverness. That's crazy. I know. And they were fucking amazing. Out shot them. <laughs> I, they were uh, up for a... Nessie. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I believe Max Cavalera, uh, sorry, I believe Igor Cavalera drums on the, the new Soul Wax album. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good album as well. Um, anyway, so Sepultura, uh, their second album, Beneath the Remains, uh, was originally meant to have different cover art. Um, the cover art uh, was supposed to be a picture by a guy called... Third record. So third record, Beneath yeah. the Remains? Yeah. It's KOCD's second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, KS when. Chaos AD was fifth Schizophrenia was second Morbid Visions was first Alright, okay, cool Uh, Well, stand corrected Uh, The Sepultura album Beneath the Remains uh, Was supposed to feature the art of a guy called Michael Whelan Um, And they were on Roadrunner uh, At the time of that And Roadrunner actually gave the all clear To the band Obituary to use the artwork Before (laughs) Sepultura were able to use it Um, Yeah Now Obituary uh, who, by the way, their first album had no lyrics on it. <laughs> it was all completely improvised, mm-hmm. oohs and grunts and noises uh, nice. at the time. Uh, their drummer, Donald Tardy, was also the original drummer for a Mr. Andrew W.K. Now, wow. I sat in this room <laughs> on Saturday night, quite late, uh, with the Mr. Benjamin Power of the band Fuck Buttons, as he went on, I'd say, at least a two-hour diatribe about the genius of Andrew WK and about how he might even be more brilliant than Aphex Twin in terms of his trolling <laughs> of his own uh, reputation and the fact that there's articles kicking about that people are like, I think he actually wrote this to contribute to his own legend to try and ob- like obfuscate the reality of how this all started. Yeah. But am- amongst all manner of really interesting things about Andrew WK, and there really are quite a few, including have you heard the album 55 uh, Cadillac? Is that the piano one? It's an entire album of like Philip Glass esque piano played well, by he Andrew did, WK. Uh, Andrew WK and Chili Gonzalez used to do piano duel gigs because they're both like world class at piano. It's crazy. And it's crazy. Yeah. And 55 Cadillac is a full album of that until the last two minutes when a big riff kicks in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but Andrew WK, and here's a really interesting thing that came out of that two hour drunken. Uh, haranguing that mm-hmm. I got mm-hmm. um, apparently uh, there, there's a lot of rumours around it and the original rumour was that Andrew WK as a project was began by Dave Grohl who wrote the music and teamed up with him in order to kind of do this concept project and have this guy this kind of ripped charismatic sort of throwaway thing happen and it just it, it really took in a big way now that's since been kind of poo-pooed but for, for a lot of people and for quite a while that was a rumour around Andrew WK that he, he was... Because, because some of the first ever Andrew WK shows were Foo, Foo Fighter sports and things mm-hmm. like that. And, and Dave Grohl used to talk about him in interviews yeah, and exactly. stuff. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot of like, you know, a lot of like circumstantial evidence. But mm-hmm. yeah, there you go. The Andrew WK, is he real? Or are there many of him? Yeah, I've heard uh, about that. <laughs> conspiracy theory is a great hole to go down on. The yeah, oh, I've done it. That, yeah, trust fantastic. me, that, that two hours was densely packed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, great. Uh, More music. I swear I'll never give it. 
Excellent. Thanks for that. <laughs> I might let you do some in future. I that was some solid um, uh, nexusing there. Thanks, man. Thanks. We all did some. We all, it was, yeah. Everybody we tried, all went tried their arse there. I think the Nexus is rapidly consuming the podcast. Yeah, though. it is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you ever seen that in Star Trek? When the Nexus, when uh, Malcolm McDowell is the baddie, it's Star Trek Generations. Oh, um, I've seen that. Yeah. Mm, and it's the Nexus sure. that they're trying to steer the planet into by destroying the sun. Um, and the Nexus like kind of consumes it. Anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> That's for a different podcast. Another excuse to mention Star Trek. Doesn't matter. So, yeah, this is... Uh, this is uh, the Foo Fighters Nexus, sponsored by the Unsung Podcast. <laughs> so Turns out the Unsung Podcast all along was a project by Dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs> See how you can connect to every single musician that lives on this planet at the moment? The hive mind. Oh. Anyway, sorry, so David, you picked this album, Spirit of Eden, which for many is the precursor of post-rock as a genre. Yeah. I would just take issue with... Ooh, the eternal question of what is post-rock because it's very, very, very far away from what a lot of people would regard as post-rock. Mm, I don't know. I think if you listen to a couple of tracks on this record, like uh, I Believe in You, it builds. It's slow. There's a lot of things happening. Like It's not a million miles away from Sigur Ross or Slint. Maybe not Sigur Ross, and I would say it goes towards stuff like Tortoise, but mm-hmm. I think when you consider post-rock also includes some of the the more guitar-based explosions in the sky stuff, it couldn't be further from that. Yeah, it's much closer to the ambient, uh, mellow side of it. Yeah. But, you know, it's what's important is that it was doing this yeah, it's first the, or it, early. It, all the kind of, like, the people, the, the kind of older purists of post-rock, the kind of Papa M and Palace Brothers and mm-hmm. the Four Carnation and those kind of people, yeah, there's probably a fair bit of this is... In, informed their their writing to some extent but i think in the wider understanding of the phrase post-rock don't listen to this album and expect oh yeah don't expect tapping <laughs> mogwai yeah hi there sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure but i just need to come in and do this rather than Sell our souls to random so adverts. We a wee just bit beg you, presumptuous, that it's a listening pleasure. It's an absolute <laughs> In, pleasure. Just interrupt your listening. <laughs> Let's leave it. You've got a really nice haircut there, Chris. Just noticed. Thanks, David. Uh, I, did, did that I mean, you, you've always got a good haircut, Mark. Thanks, bro. Uh, it's I have he's got to get a stylist. He does have a stylist. <laughs> so, not using that anymore. Are you not? Enough, no. Can't afford that. So we're doing. Uh, well, <laughs> so what you need to do is uh, donate some money to us if you can to help Mark afford a stylist once again <laughs> I like clothes <laughs> <laughs> what I want to know is where is he siphoning off all the money to now if he's not wasting all the donations and yeah, style sitting in an account in the Cayman Islands I <laughs> <laughs> supposed to tell him about that <laughs> uh, no but seriously thank you to everybody that uh, donates it's what keeps us alive and what uh, keeps us going and what stops this podcast from having like three minutes of shite at the start talking about selling mattresses or something <laughs> it's like got that. a lot of shite I mean it's entirely <laughs> shite but it's our shite you know we're not s- selling anything uh, apart from ourselves so if you want to keep us advert free uh, then please keep donating that would be absolutely ideal thanks very much and also we all need haircuts again <laughs> <laughs> But what it has is an incredible use of dynamics. If that dynamic is soft, no. But <laughs> there's a peak in this record. Like if you want, if we want to talk about how the record ebbs and flows, it comes in, and because it's like when you, I don't know, I was going to do some sort of tortured metaphor about how like audio systems plugged into each other and plugged into each other. If the quiet is very quiet, then that means that your two is a lot louder than 0.1 like yeah basically they set the bar so low in terms of quietness that they are then able to if you listen to this record on headphones or in a quiet house at night on vinyl which i think are the two best ways to listen to it uh this isn't a car record (laughs) no um then you can fully appreciate just how gentle this record is but how they can also use that space that they create by starting with a fucking nine minute song this is a pop pop band you know they've 
done pop records and then what the fuck is this you know fourth album starts with a nine minute song and see when you go nothing back. really happens until four minutes into it but what that four minutes of building up on that first song it tells the listener of we're going to be quiet and we're going to use the space that that we're going to create for ourselves uh, and i think that's what this album does brilliantly is it creates a space and it allows very very gentle shifts in tone and in volume that make i don't know yeah they're just amplified I think if we go back to the low album that we did, how is this not mumblecore? Because even though he's doing it in falsetto, it's falsetto mumbling. I mean, there are points when the falsetto completely falls away below any sort of audible level, and mm-hmm. it, that for me, it's almost conceptual. It goes, it, it, it is a concept album. It goes um, beyond. Uh, it goes beyond the point of just being adventurous and actually becomes it, it makes big demands of its listener for me and I, I don't have a problem I really in, love demanding music yeah though. I don't have a problem <laughs> that's why they're doing this right okay so put it this way I don't have a problem with music that's demanding but I need that music to also reward for those demands and whilst I accept and very actually do admire the ambition and the the innovation mm-hmm. of the arrangements on this album I find it extremely unrewarding to listen to. Like, I don't think they recoup you for your investment. I think, you like, know, like you said about I, the four minutes, I spent four minutes waiting for something to happen. And it does do that little kind of brief reprise, but the the rewards to effort ratio is so painfully poor. I'm not sure, but I, I just think that the, reward, the rewards are different. I think an interesting thing to talk about is, like, how they recorded it. Yeah, I was I going mean, to mention that earlier on as well. The composition I, of it is The composition of it bizarre, was a much really. more sort of free jazz, experimental, um, improvised thing. And, you know, by all accounts, it didn't sound like it was an awful lot of fun to record. They went into a studio in London with darkened out windows 12 hours a day for, you know, a few months. And I think they really captured that sense of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a film in lots of ways, you know. This, yeah. this thing was created through editing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... It took a year to compile it. I mean, that's a bit like the first Mars Volta album, though. The first Mars Volta album was mm-hmm. sketches that were then strung together with overdubbed and deliberately inserted kind of bridge material. Totally, like, but I mean, they 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 also had a desire to play that live. I mean, okay, yeah, the bands I, have spoken about the fact that this was never meant to be played live because they don't even know how they could play. Granted, it. but to illustrate maybe my earlier point, that first Mars Volta, and by the way, I'm not by any means a card carrying Mars Volta advocate here. I think their later stuff's very poor, but yeah, the, that first album is very demanding, but it's also very rewarding. You think it's demanding? I got yeah. it straight away, man. But I don't know what. I, I'm, I'm the, not really. Yeah, like, I mean, if you're going to like get through the whole album, if you go through like um, Televators and stuff like that, it's got these huge experimental kind of sprawling sections that you really i mean you're listening to like jungle animals you know it's it's it's, it's weird but it, the the payoffs for me in that album are excellent um so i think i think that i'm not saying this should sound like that it's a completely different beast but i think the payoff ratio is poor that that's kind of what i'm getting at i think for me i was really interested in the way that they used silence as an instrument on the record and for me that for that i found that quite to, to come to that knowledge, I found quite quite rewarding, quite a rewarding thing. Yeah, and I found that I wanted to listen to it. Like the first time I listened to it, I was like, "What the fuck is this? Right? Why am I listening to this? I don't like this." Yeah, but I was like, oh, "I need to listen to it again." And I probably wouldn't have listened to it again if it wasn't for this podcast. I probably would not listen to this record more mm-hmm. than once. And the second time, I was like, oh, "Actually, there's stuff here that I'm beginning to like." Yeah, you know, and it means to be seen. I'll go back to it again, but, but I, there's... I find myself thinking about it though. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, is... exactly. I think it creates. I, don't, I keep going back to it, it creates space and like much that famous saying in jazz is it's not about the notes you play it's about the notes that you don't play and I think this album takes that to an extreme in a you know pop record it's not 
a minimalist album, but it's close to it. I, no, it is a minimalist album. It it's not an ambient album. album. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's not ambient. Although people do use that word quite a lot when they're in the reviews and then the kind of yeah. retrospectives and stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I genuinely think this is a record that you get more and more and more from the more that you listen to, and it was like the sec. Yeah, yeah, it was probably the second or third listening uh, for me that it got its hook, its claws into me, and I just kept going back. Um, I think I, th- I would I would say as a bit of a caveat that I do think musically it's far far better than it is vocally. I find the music and the arrangements on it interesting, and as a musician, in- including a mu- and also a consumer that enjoys some very subdued stuff, I-, I do think there are some interesting bits of instrumentation. I think the vocals are dreadful, and I think that's the thing. I don't think they come together with the music in a way that makes me ever want to listen to it. I don't think his falsettoy mumbling. Ever really? I captures. I think his vocals are a lot better on these two records than they were on his on the previous three. I never really liked him as a pop vocalist. Uh, there's something kind of kind of had that eggy voice. Mm-hmm. But I think I think when he takes it back on Is this record, eggy, yeah, sitting it's a new new word in the. <laughs> um, in the but no, I I I like his vocals in this. Um, I think they've got a sort of fragility that they didn't have on the first, you know. Fragile, definitely. Stuff. I, I, I honestly, I found them, I found them excruciating, uh, and and I'm not trying to be yeah. ne- needlessly contrarian. I just find the vocals excruciating, and as I said, the vocals are all the worst parts of Shearwater, who ripped them off pretty shamelessly, I think. But Shearwater at least has the decency to belt out or or dig into like really nice accessible hooks at times some of which aren't particularly obvious progressions some of which are quite jazzy um there's some really interesting stuff in the first couple of Shearwater records that's quite quite odd and loungy but I, I, he at least has the decency to kind of pay off uh, I, I i just don't get any reward for this record at all other than a little bit of cerebral satisfaction at my ability to follow it the vocals for me I mean, the vocals are a huge thing for me, and this is one of the very rare instances where I find myself completely ignoring the vocals mm-hmm. on the record, like, entirely, and I don't do that very often. When I say I don't know if I'll come back to that's probably why I think that, is because there isn't really a strong vocal presence on the record for me, which is which maybe I, which is tells f- why I might not go back and listen to it after this. Yeah, I understand that. For me, vocals have never been the big part, which is maybe why I listen to so much instrumental music, and maybe that's why the vocals on this aren't an issue for me because to me it's just another instrument and with the production and the the playing on this record the all the instruments come and go and there's nothing strong throughout what they all they, they all add up to this sort of i don't know bath like quality of you know gentle st- i think on the, on the third track desire there's an, an interesting bit with the kind of off time beat yeah, that drum. I yeah. like to me that's like the the peak of the dynamic on this record. It's like they're proving they can be a fucking rock band, and they've got that bit. And I remember, you know, that's that's the play loud half track on this record um and i think they they put it pretty much in the middle of the record time wise well apparently the first half on on vinyl the first half of the vinyl plays uninterrupted mm-hmm. um because they segue through those first three songs yeah um it's such an 80s decision to do that isn't it to have like <laughs> a cd in and then break it down into three tracks it's such an 80s thing to do see um Coming from a pop right on a major label that's something a major label definitely would have decided to do it, it is weird when you're sequencing a record for different formats actually trying to like take all of that in consideration yeah and still absolutely make it work. um but I th- you know there's there's stuff on i mean you can i think you can hear both people they've been influenced by i think like and people they have influenced. I hear like little moments of the kind of soulful sort of Tracy Chapman type stuff, and I hear 
It sounds as though Mark Hollis is like Nina Simone, maybe. Tap my freedom. Let my freedom. Let my freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that they're a very British band, and uh, I can't remember who. Like, so there was a about five years ago there was a tribute to talk talk album and it was a huge amount of like world musicians that were on it and it was like people like boniver and folk from the guillemots equally interesting people and they (laughs) um and they'd all obviously been heavily influenced by them and somebody had said that it was talk talk were or and these two albums were very english or british band but then somebody else had said that there's parts on um spirit of eden that sound really like sort of american bluesy there's some yeah new orleans i mean he does he does listen to like his influences a lot of like a lot of american jazz singers and i think the, the nina simone sort of soulful thing that he tries to put in his vocals is there but ultimately it feels quite unconvincing to me because you know for one i've been quite reductive you are just listening to like a a kind of moderately successful white synth pop guy kind of whinging into a microphone it's not got that majesty or you're listening to a really talented musician that has also been afforded a lot of money and studio time to create something great yeah and and beauty's in the eye of the beholder but for me like taking that and and hearing that influence it just i feel short changed because i'm like okay i hear that you're trying to be soulful but it's fallen so far short of people that of other singers that i just it, it didn't it didn't click emotionally uh okay cool on this side of the room, on, <laughs> in this corner of the room um, it did gra- like i said it grabbed me on second and third and fourth yeah. lessons um and I, st- I don't know i'm still i'm still the more i talk about it the more i kind of i, I realize how stuck in the middle i'm with it like yeah i keep thinking about it after the fact you know yeah i remember talking about it and uh, to some friends and i was like oh fuck i've listened to this talk talk record and it's just jazz fucking <laughs> nonsense man it's not nice it's just not nice to listen to and the second time it really opened up to me um but it is a very fucking mellow record yeah it's super chill it's, um, th- it's not a pop record in any yeah. way you know it's, it's the exact opposite of everything that you could possibly have done in positions at that point in their career yeah and that's and that's a something that i really respect about it and you know the fact that they um you know the record label had no fucking idea what to do with this uh they fell out with the record label yeah, quite they badly then, yeah. yeah they then had to sign with they were with emi and then they signed with polydor the for, record label tried to retrospectively sue them for releasing something so blatantly uncommercial so uh, yeah um a couple of quotes mm. it's the kind of record which encourages marketing men to commit suicide <laughs> uh it's triumphant but completely unmarketable uh so you know this was this was a band that had sold two million records in 1986 uh, and were expecting you know big things um it was the era of you know u2 and stuff like that and it was like all right let's go out there and make a f- big album they'd been given a lot of money to go and then they came back <laughs> with this you know where it so far from having hit singles i mean here's here's the curveball like i'm probably gonna say yeah in terms of it going forward. Jessica Sachs face turn? Uh, yeah, a wee bit of a face turn there. I, I think only because I do acknowledge its significance and I do acknowledge cerebrally, up, higher brain, uh, kind of, I can see the influence it's had, I can see how important it is to people. Mm-hmm. I think I'm almost definitely on the wrong side of it here, but I can appreciate that, but I find it a deeply, not, not, I find it a deeply, deeply unremarkable listening experience crossing over and actually quite unpleasant. So it's it's probably the first time that I can honestly say I really don't like this album, but I also am very aware of that. I think it's you actually, respect it, but it's I respect, not for you. I think it's a good choice because it, it's a it's a very significant album. Because also people, critically, a laughing stock is maybe seen retrospectively as the even sort of more. Uh, critic the lauded choice. I think sometimes, uh, that's the one that critics, in retrospect, go in deep on. Um, but uh, to me, it's maybe just a little bit too, too obtuse. 
um but i think this one and i think um i think it's held by that fucking drumbeat in desire it shouldn't like it's such a fragile fulcrum for no but it is it's like (laughs) you go to that and it all builds from that i don't know there's something in my head that there's just something this is a beautifully built record and it's all very gradual (laughs) Um, I mean, I, honestly, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to vote against it in that sense. I do, I do think there's an academic case for this that's very, very strong, and I think it's a, a it's just, it's a good choice because it deserves, given its bravery, it, it deserves for people to hear it. I'm just saying personally, I've heard it. I think it's pish. <laughs> um. Okay. Cool. Well, I think for a listener who hasn't heard this album, I would probably say go and start i mean you could just listen to the record through or if you want to I, i'd maybe listen to i believe in you which is uh track six i think five five um and it has this beautifully delicate build to it and it this four four comes in grows and grows and then there's like an organ comes in and goes out and i think maybe listen to that in the quiet on headphones and if it does something for you then listen to the record and let it get your claws into it if you find it annoying, then that's fine. It's not for you. I'd also like to add to that that although, like we, we've obviously given some time on this record, we've mentioned lots of different bands, we've mentioned lots of different kinds of music, and it's still nothing like any of that. It sounds like it, yeah, do- exactly. it doesn't sound like it's really hard to draw a comparison to this to anything else. And that's going back to the post rock thing. I don't think this sits in there at all, personally. Yeah. Um, it's definitely experimental, um, but it's hard to. It's hard to overstate and understate just exactly how strange this record is and as a listening experience it is. It's maybe the closest you could talk... The closest thing I can think of is maybe the second half of uh, Hounds of Love by Kate Bush where she went really experimental on the B-side of that record. Um, But then, you know, she's got huge production values and it's a big pop record. Um, But she's been allowed to go weird and a bit ambient I would and then this takes that to even more extremes I would j- say to people um, if you do listen to this and there's moments of it you like but you kind of share my opinion I'd say it's worth checking out Shearwater as well yeah Shearwater are a good band I've never been able to find an album that is consistent Palo Santo and uh, Animal Life are good albums there's yeah th- those are the ones I would say are the best Um, but yeah I think uh Shearwater is like the, the, the actually like the pop version of this. This set to three, four, five minute songs. Mm-hmm. Well, it'll be really interesting to see how this shakes out in the vote. So it's in, as ever, it's in the public's hands. So go to our Facebook page and vote. Um, also, I know we keep asking this, and it's like a fucking broken record, but honestly, we're not seeing you guys do it. So please just tell a friend, tag a friend. If you know a Talk Talk fan, <laughs> I'm sure they'd love to hear this. Or an Maybe. elbow fan. <laughs> or an elbow <laughs> fan, yeah. Uh, but Do those yeah. people use the internet? Uh, no, they just listen to Radio 6 in the afternoon and that's it. <laughs> Damn. But yeah, please go and listen. No, please go and vote, sorry. And tell friends. Chris, what are we doing next week? Next week, uh, I'm delighted to say we are going to get drugged at our nuts and do Independent Worm Saloon by the Butthole Surfers. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, you heard me right. Quite different. The Butthole Surfers. That'll be good. If you haven't already met this band, uh, you're in for a treat. Oh. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Good Uh, night. Good night. Thanks, that was a pleasure. I'm going to go have a bath and listen to this record. Because this is what this record was made for. You'll fall asleep in the bath, you'll drown, (laughs) and we'll have to draft in some other fake Dave, just like fake Andrew WK. That's fine. I don't mind. I think I know Dave. There is no. There is. I'm not real. I'm just looking <laughs> no like Dave's, but not not that Dave. It's a special Dave. Oh, okay. I am real. Oh, that's good.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.